Hey everyone, this is Sam Ashu, and you are listening to another episode of Amplify. As promised, we are delivering episodes a little bit more often whenever there is important content to share, and I am super excited today to introduce you to Dr. Ashley Shreves. Not only is she a board-certified emergency physician, but she's also board-certified in palliative care, which gives her an exceptionally unique standpoint when it comes to COVID-19 and what we are all experiencing on a daily basis. In addition, Dr. Shreves will share that she has also personally experienced a COVID-19 infection and recovered, and she now spends her time between the emergency department and the inpatient palliative care service treating patients who are suffering with the illness that she has already recovered from. And that is such a unique scenario that you just have to hear her experience and the small little pearls that she has to share with us regarding palliative care. But before we begin, I'm also very excited to tell you about two live webinars that EB Medicine will be hosting in June. They include two of our most popular topics covered in the past year, both of which will be all the more critical for staying up to date clinically because they'll incorporate up to the minute COVID-19 implications for both headache and dizziness, two of the most common complaints that are now becoming even more confounding with the coronavirus added to the differential. The first is on Thursday, June 4th, life-threatening headache and current considerations due to COVID-19. And the second is on Wednesday, June 17th, a new timing and triggers approach to diagnosing causes of acute dizziness. Both of them will start at 8 p.m. with an interactive didactic session followed by lots of time for Q&A, and each carries up to five CME credits, one for the hour-long webinar, and four more if you do the self-study journal article review. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes to register. You'll see me as your moderator and Dr. Edward Sloan as your presenter. It'll be a great opportunity to interact live with all of you, so I highly encourage you to take advantage and sign up today. And now, here is Dr. Shreves. Yes, so I'm Ashley Shreves. I am an emergency physician and a palliative medicine physician, and I work at Oshner in New Orleans. Fantastic. And you are in the, are you on the downslope yet of your COVID-19? We've been on the downslope, I think, for weeks. Oh, good. Um, I'd say the first week of April was probably where we peaked. And uh, we have been on the downslope ever since. The challenge is, I think, like a lot of systems, the COVID patients that were admitted in March and April, and they stay for a very long time, many of them. So the hospital still has a huge number of these patients in the ICUs, but very few of them coming in, I would say. And your peak volume or your peak for the COVID crisis there in early April brought you, so how, how many ventilated patients did you did you have? I mean, just at the main campus, uh, we had over 100 patients at one point that were ventilated with COVID. Wow. Uh, we created... Uh, three additional ICUs. We already had. I'm the, I've never seen so many ICUs just at baseline at main campus. It's a you know it's a it's a large tertiary care center, and then they created two to three additional ones, and brought in all the cardiologists, all the surgical subspecialists, 
uh, worked as sort of interns and residents. And then a lot of the critical care docs sort of took on a supervisory sort of role managing these little teams, which still actually is in effect. I mean, there's still that many vented patients that uh, they have two additional floors still of ICU patients wow. with COVID. Yeah. And did you end up boarding many of these people in the emergency department having to care for them yourself? No. Wow. No, the system's been remarkable. Uh, they quickly created these extra spaces. I mean, they did, I think, what everyone else did, which was canceled all the elective surgeries, you know, did all the things you're supposed to do. And I think a lot of systems did all that stuff, and then they didn't really get any COVID patients. And I'm sure that was incredibly frustrating. We did all of those things, and then we were flooded with COVID patients. So it was like really reinforced how important that um, that was. And then they quickly realized they were going to need additional ICU spaces, and they just created them. And then again, quickly shifted physicians into, and other providers into different roles and just absorbed all that volume. I want to say there were like a few days where we were boarding some COVID patients in the ED, um, maybe a week, but it, you know, we actually had a huge boarding problem before COVID. And um, since COVID, we've had like very minimal boarding. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's the greatest thing that ever happened to us. And then your training in palliative care has served you well, I take it, during this crisis? Yes. So I actually, um, my first real experience uh, in the crisis was on palliative care because, I mean, we had our first case in New Orleans on March 9th, and I got sick on March 12th. So I was out for like nine days sick. And then when I came back, I was on the palliative care service. So, I mean, I think obviously we had been taking care of COVID patients probably for a couple of weeks in the ED without knowing it, which is why I got sick, um, prior to our first sort of real case in New Orleans. Um, but so I missed that first, that first week or two in the ED, you know, sort of logging into the board and talking to my colleagues was totally chaotic. And that was when they were sort of getting flooded with patients. And I missed all of that. Um, and then, but I did get that experience on the palliative care end and it was intense. It was very intense. Um, we, at one point that week that I was on, um, we actually just started printing out lists of COVID patients in the hospital by age, like the oldest person to the youngest person. And we just divided up the list and we put our own consults in and just went and started seeing them on the floor and talking to them. They, so the, my colleagues, none of them had had COVID. And so I think they were you know trying to be very cautious and PPE was in short supply at that point. So they were trying to call the patients in their rooms and do all those sort of telemedicine things. I was fortunate because I felt like I was probably pretty well protected at that point. So I went in the rooms with all these patients and got to sit down and talk to them, which was really intense. Um, but it also felt incredibly, um, there's like, there was such an urgency to the work and it felt very productive to be able to go in there and actually talk to them face to face and map out their goals. Um, it was also very overwhelming because we never got to the whole list. You know, every day we would sort of divide up the list and we would sort of get to people in their mid seventies. You know, we would never get below there. There's so many people. Um, and that was just a very strange experience. 
Now you're seeing them at a time where visitation is different because of COVID-19 as well. So you're probably one of the few people who can actually walk in the room with these patients, right? Exactly. Yes. Um, so that was, I felt so fortunate because I was, I mean, I, I was so, I'm so grateful to have gotten sick. I've never been more grateful to have had an illness in my whole life because I just thought, I can just go in and be with these patients and I don't have to have that anxiety. I mean, obviously we're not entirely sure what it means to have had it, but I've never gotten sick again and I have spent an enormous amount of time um, with COVID patients uh, since I got sick. And to just kind of be there with them and know that you're exactly right. Like you're kind of the only person that's gonna be with them um, was so intense. And you know, many of them had cell phones that had FaceTime capabilities and things like that, but they're so sick, they're kind of not able to navigate that. So to be able to set all of that up, um, like very simple things, it was actually, um, that felt very productive as well. So you're helping them communicate with their own family using FaceTime? Yes. So communicating with their own families during doing FaceTime. Um, and, you know, I'd like pick up the phone and there'd be like 20 missed calls you know, from the family, like they're calling and calling and calling and this person's in like moderate to severe respiratory distress on a non-rebreather, you know, and they're not able to, so just like picking up the phone and like, okay, I'm going to call this last person here. Is that the person? And then showing them and uh, it was, it was intense. I had one, the 93 year old I mentioned in the, um, in the essay that I had written, she was one of the ones who honestly sort of changed the way I thought about this in terms of how I talked to patients early in the course of their illness. It was very humbling because she's 93 years old and she has very severe disease and required a non-rebreather, I think within 24 hours of being admitted. And I talked to the family and I talked to her about whether we would escalate to ventilation if things got worse. And ultimately counseled them that I thought that she wouldn't do well given her age. You know, she was in really good shape before uh, she had gotten sick, but she did have some comorbidities and she's 93. You know, I just thought there's just no way. So they agreed to, um, she was DNR, DNI, but they still wanted, you know, fairly aggressive treatment and wanted to give her a shot and she wanted a shot. And that seemed very reasonable. At the same time, I thought, you know, she's already required a non-rebreather. Well, we're, this is in the first two or three weeks, right? So we're still sort of figuring this out. Does everyone, when they require an non-rebreather crash, do some people re recover? We don't even know because at this point, everyone that needed more than six liters was being put on a vent right away. Mm -hmm. So the sort of putting someone on a non-rebreather and kind of seeing how they do, we hadn't even really tried that with anyone um, who wasn't going to then be sort of comfort measures only. And so I counseled the family that she was going to die and I get the, you know, the iPhone in the room and... We, they all say goodbye to her and they all pray with her and everyone's crying and then they thank me. And then a week later, she was discharged from the hospital wow. <laughs> and, and did great. Um, and it was just this, like, it was incredibly positive, obviously. It was just very hopeful that someone that sick could recover. Um, it was also very humbling. And um, it worried me that we should be careful about how we have these conversations. And I was, and I'm even more worried when I'm 
seeing these studies come out where it's like one institution, you know, 88% of the event died and one institution, only 60 to 70% died. And what, you know, it's like, whoa, those are wildly different numbers. Um, and so I, I still think there's a lot of, a lot of prognostic uncertainty in certain populations, in certain, um, groups. And so I'm just, it's sort of, I've reframed these conversations, I think based on that week I had on palliative care. I also, in addition to her, had a couple of ICU patients where we were sort of talking to the family about possible withdrawals of life support. And then they were extubated and have made a full recovery after a very long, a very prolonged uh, ICU course. So after one of them was 18 days on the event and the other one was 15 days and both of them have made um, terrific recoveries. Wow. Right. So, I mean, it's strange and mysterious. So you did not see and haven't been seeing that that 80, 90% death rate from ICU patients on vents? I don't know what our actual mortality is. And we've sort of, we were very early on talking with a couple of our critical care colleagues, trying to get that data, like, give us that data, give us that data. And they said, all I can tell you is our mortality data in the ICU before COVID and our mortality data in the ICU after COVID seems to be looking the same so far. So one of my ICU colleagues was like, everybody just calm down. And, you know, he and I kind of got into it. And then it was one of those conversations that after I was like, oh my God, he's totally right. Um, You know, he's like, you know, it seems like this is going to be worse in some ways, but in other ways, it's behaving like every other critical illness. You know, ARDS, mortality 50%. Multi-organ failure, it goes up to 70, 80%. That's kind of what we're seeing. It's not that different. Um, everyone calmed down. You know, he was very concerned early on about, you know, 50 and 60 year old patients being made DNR, DNI without even a trial of critical care because of this sense Hmm. that the mortality was so high, it was sort of hopeless once you were on event. Again, I don't know what our exact numbers are, but they're definitely not hopeless. I would suspect that my guess is sort of anecdotally, I suspect is maybe 60 to 70% mortality on the event, which is still substantial, but it means that quite a few patients are recovering. Um, and they've had, like, they had an 88 year old that they extubated and did well. Um, I think that the place where we've uniformly seen terrible outcomes are the older population that has very serious comorbidities. So that's been an area where I think pretty uniformly they haven't done well. So, you know, your 80 year old who has cancer, um, or your 80 year old in advanced cancer, your 80 year old who's got heart failure, COPD, some serious, not just high blood pressure, you know, but some serious comorbidities and frailty. So that frail group, they have not done well. Um, and then the other group that is sort of uniformly done poorly is once they are vented and then they're developing renal failure requiring CRT and clotting their lines, they've had, um, I think maybe two patients that have been extubated at that point. Um, and they were both fairly young and healthy, um, like 30s and 40s. So so I do think there are some trends that can you can sort of feed back then to that early goals of care discussion, because that's what people need, right? When they're going to make an informed decision, they have to know, like, what am I, you know, I'll go through anything if I think I'm going to make it through. Um, it's not necessarily the burden of treatment, but the outcome that people care about when they're making a treatment decision and that was, I think, so challenging, especially early on, and still is, 
is being able to give them reliable data that's not based on our own biases or the last crazy case we heard about, you know, or anecdotes and whatnot. So how do you frame that conversation with so much uncertainty when you're, when you're doing this uh, in front of a patient? You're, you, you're looking through their past medical history and their age and then telling them what we know? So, yeah, no, I know. So I've changed it in that um, I now, so it was funny when I came back and I've been on PalCare now twice and then come back into the ED after. And it's a reminder to me when I've taken care of then these really, really sick COVID patients in the ED, right? When they come in is I can't hit them with all of it. You know, they're like in respiratory distress or even the ones that aren't, you know, in fulminant respiratory failure, they're so sick. They're in shock that they have this serious illness. And then to kind of go through the entire goals of care discussion that I can do, you know, on hospital day two or three in the inpatient setting, I can't necessarily do it. It doesn't feel right. And I noticed that. Um, but I do think there are some important things that I have to cover. One is to plant the seed that this is serious, um, to tell them to call their family and to tell their family it could be serious. And then I use the hope for the best plan for the worst. Cause that to me feels like the most honest way to communicate to the patient that this could be serious and this could even be fatal. They're really, I think in a lot of these patients, there is still reasons to hope though, and to actually hope for a recovery at the same time planning for if things get worse, what would you want? And also you should talk to your family because things could get worse. And, you know, this is an opportunity to still talk to them. So, you know, I'm sure you've heard about this, this disease. It can get very serious very quickly. Um, and so while I hope that you will recover, and I think it is very possible that you will, I have seen other patients like you who have gotten sick and I and even have to be put on the ventilator and often not recover. So I think it's important that we have a discussion about what we would do if things got worse. And so that's sort of the, the that's, and, and some patients, I won't even say let's have a discussion yet. I want you to start to think about. I want you to just start to think about, I want you to call your family right now and I want you to start to think about what would be important to you and what things you would want and wouldn't want if things got worse. Cause some of the patients, they come in and they're on two or four liters and you know, things could get worse, but they're probably not going to get worse today or tomorrow. You know, I've even been wrong about that, but, um, but I'm doing that a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm doing that a lot less now. We're barely seeing any COVID patients coming in right now. Um, but at that point I had sort of shifted that, and then, you know, there are patients that I'm still saying to them, you know, again, the older patients with serious comorbidities and a lot of frailty. Um, I had one on, on Saturday or Sunday. I had a nursing home patient with COVID who's bed bound. And I told the family that I did not think she would recover. I did not think it would make sense to put her through a course of critical care. I thought that would prolong her dying and I would recommend strongly against it. So I still, I think, you know, I still will give a strong recommendation for or against. And by the way, I had to do that in a 59 year old, you know, we've had a couple of 50 year olds. They're so terrified of the illness and what they've heard from their community and going on a ventilator to them means dying. Mm -hmm. And this sort of, if I can just sort of not have to go on a ventilator, then I'm not that sick. The sort of the denial thing kicks in and so we've had some people in their 50s where we've had to talk them into going on a ventilator. You know, like, listen, buddy, like, you have hypertension and that's it. 
and you're otherwise in good shape, like you've got the best shot, like you should do this. And I've had to talk, we've had to talk a few people into doing a trial of critical care. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the end of the day, right, you have the medical judgment and the experience you've seen now hundreds of patients with COVID, they have not, you know, and so you, you've got to sort of feed that back to them and give them, I think, the benefit of that experience as, you know, as limited as it is, um, and sort of pushing them in a direction that you think is going to be in their best interest. So, so I have done that. Do you ever tell your patients that you had it and have recovered and use that as an example? Um, yes, not often though. I haven't, none of the people that are really sick because, um, so we have a COVID ER just for our non-sick COVID patients. Um, it's winding down. We're probably going to close it soon because at the sort of peak, we were just seeing so many patients, you know, with URIs and anyone over an O2 set of 92%, uh, would go over there. And so when I'm working there, you know, the patients are, have COVID, they're super anxious, am I going to get sick, you know? And so in that population, I would say, you know, I had it, I got better, I know it's so scary. Um, in the really sick patients, I've never, I would never, I just feel like it would be like rubbing it in, like I had it and it already got better, you know, you're not going to do so well. So I, I, I did not share it. Other than every now and then people would be worried because um, I'd kind of sit on the bed with them and and I'd be like, it's okay, it's okay, I've already had it. I'm not worried about getting it. Um, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And when you're in there with the people who are critically ill, you're still wearing all the PPE as someone who's had it before, or you're kind of doing a halfway in between or sort of, yeah. I mean, like I don't I don't wear an N95 mask. I'll wear just like a, a surgical mask. I mean, I wanna like be compliant and I wanna protect my clothing because I'm gonna go into another room with another patient who maybe doesn't have COVID. So I try to be mindful about protecting myself to protect other patients, I'd say is my goal when I'm taking care of COVID patients, but I'm not, I would say, very careful about my own um, protection. And I've, I mean, again, I haven't had any, any other, any issues. So for someone who's listening, who is still on the early part of that curve and things are starting to grow slightly or maybe faster than they would like, as they're having these conversations with patients, you, know, you mentioned sometimes you just, you can't hit a patient with this all at once and you try and maybe introduce the idea that things might get worse and it's time to have that conversation or at least to think about it. Do you think you're going a little bit further in that conversation with patients who have multiple risk factors and are old, and then the younger people who are on slightly less oxygen, you might say, well, it's probably a good idea for you to think about this, but we don't have to have this conversation right now. Or are you just gauging their readiness state and having that conversation with anyone who's willing? Everything that you just said. I mean, I I sort of, I agree with everything you just said. You sort of mapped it all out. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's certain patients you probably don't even need to have. And listen, we, we send a lot of these patients home. Um, I mean, more patients home than we admitted, I believe. Um, yes. So some patients are not ready. Um, a lot of patients in the ED are not ready. It's funny because every time I would come back from my week on pal care, I'd be like, all right, let's do this. And then I'd walk into the room with these patients who had just arrived by EMS 10 minutes ago. And I was like, mm, this doesn't feel quite right, you know, to hit them with all this right now. Um, but um, some patients are ready, 
and can have the conversation. And the families are often ready for the critically ill patients that can have the conversation. Uh, so I, I, I wish there was like a, a one, one size fits all answer here, but there is not. And I think that was the frustrating thing for me. I had to kind of learn on the job the week of PalCare is that there's not going to be a one size. Not everyone doesn't die and everyone doesn't live. Some people that you think are going to live are going to die. Some people that you think are going to live, there's going to be surprising recoveries. There's also going to be people, you know, who are not going to surprise you, who you're just, just like before COVID, who you were like, this patient's not going to do well, you know, with, in this sort of extreme places and you're going to be right. Um, so I think that that's got to be the, the guide for the conversation. Um, I think the melding of emergency medicine and palliative care kind of gives you this unique perspective, really having been on on both sides of the equation, because I'm fortunate enough to work with colleagues who are hospitalists. And the first question in an elderly patient that I'm getting when I'm trying to admit someone who's you know in their 90s to a hospitalist service is, well, did you have the conversation about you know what are their wishes? Are they DNR? Are they DNI? What are we doing here? And I often find myself saying, well, you know, I introduced the subject to them and to the family, but they've been here, you know, an hour an hour. <laughs> and, and oh, they're right. just not quite ready to go. Okay, find me a DNR. I'm going to sign it right now because no one has had this conversation with them before today. And this was wholly unexpected. They, you know, they were planning to do it in a year's time or next week, or it was on their to-do list, but they didn't get to it. And unfortunately now we're in this situation and I couldn't hit them with everything all at once. I totally agree. I, I, and as someone who then has to sort of pick up the pieces on the other side doing palliative care, I get it. I get it. I mean, it's just, it's very hard to hit everybody, to hit patients with all of that. And in addition, if you just want to get the DNR, and only when everyone's obsessed with the DNR, it's like, by the way, the most useless part, right, of an advanced directive. Um, and to really do it well, it's got to be embedded in a larger conversation. And sometimes that larger conversation actually is fairly straightforward. You know, in a, in a patient who's very elderly, serious comorbidities, has actually thought about this previously, had already completed advanced directives. Sometimes this is like a five minute conversation and it's fine. But like you said, in a patient that, and some of these patients, you know, they're sixties and seventies that are getting critically ill and they've never had a serious illness before. So they haven't unfortunately thought about this. So it's going to be multiple conversations, you know, with family, um, just sort of sort all of this out. If the goal, and this was one of the things that one of my critical care colleagues um, smartly pointed out to me, and I, I feel like I needed this feedback, is we want everyone to aggressively go out and do goals of care conversations. You know, we were sort of putting that message out initially. And he was like, let me tell you what I'm observing is the quality of the goals of care discussions has plummeted. And so, you know, the stakes are real high in these conversations. You want to really make sure that you got it right you know, that you really understand what's important to them, that they really understand the consequences of whichever decision they are, you know, opting for. Um, and so I think that I'd rather, I would, I mean, this, I'd rather put somebody on a ventilator and opt for that until we can really sort this out um, and figure out what they want rather than having a hasty, you know, five minute conversation, okay, they're DNR, DNI, and then, you know, committing them to 
a comfort-oriented route when they didn't really understand uh, what they were choosing. So I think, you know, it, there's a lot of pressure, and I feel like there was about a week or two where things felt uh, pressured. Um, because I think we were starting, you know, some of our hospitals running on events and there was that sort of sense that things were getting tight. Um, and so I, that's, that created that sense, but, but we had, we, I mean, again, it was very helpful for me to talk to this critical care colleague and he sort of reinforced, like, everyone's got to slow down. We still have to do this right. We still have to do this well, um, with each individual patient. Um, and so that's why I've I've sort of I've stepped back a little bit, particularly in the ED, to try to pressure all of this, get all of this down perfectly, and and get it all done and get the answers uh, in the first ten minutes. It's not realistic. It's not going to be a high quality conversation always. You know. Do you find some of your partners in the emergency department reaching out to you based on your palliative care experience and all the asking you questions? All the time. What Absolutely. are some of the common things that they that they I ask? Mean, they call me, they all have my cell phone. So they know like if they have somebody they want to get to an inpatient hospice or they want, they have a question about how to, to talk to a family about this, that, and the other, that they can call me. Um, and so pal care is on call, but, um, I always tell them pal care is on call as long as it's not a time when I'm sleeping and it's okay. Cause I silence my phone when I'm sleeping, call me first, because I kind of know, I know how they're thinking and I know what's on their mind. And so they do. So I probably get called like once a week from them. Um, and then when I'm in the ED, they will come and grab me um, often to help. Um, you know, is this a patient that could go home with hospice? Is this a patient that should go, should go inpatient? Is this, you know, how, how should I talk to this person? A bunch of my colleagues have emailed me. This is sort of the, these are the phrases that I'm using. Uh, do you think this is correct? This is how I'm sort of framing this discussion for the COVID patients. Um, you know, what do you think? What do you see on the pal care end? And and so it's it's terrific. I love it. I'm like I want to be useful, so please involve me. Except when I'm sleeping, I don't like to be useful when I'm sleeping. Um, other than that, I could be pretty much doing anything, and I'm happy to field a palliative care question. And when the palliative care service is on call and it's not you, do you? Uh, later on ever get the chance to share some of you know, the conversations you're having with your colleagues with them and just say, Hey, I am, you know, or I frequently get questions about X, Y, and Z and they call me instead of you guys, but I welcome that. I think it's okay. And then do you ever, do you ever lend your perspective there? They know that my chair is like, hold on, has been like, so I know there was an issue, but it sounds like you took care of it. And I'm like, I did. I mean, I, I, I want to, I, I like doing, I mean, the reason I did the fellowship and everything is I, I find this like incredibly fascinating, interesting, rewarding, meaningful work. So um, I want to help them troubleshoot the issues and um, I enjoy it. So, so it's not a burden at all. Um, and, and they know that. So they, they do reach out often and, and I, I like it. A couple more, just brief questions. Now, when you were doing your your time on the palliative care service, and you're the one rounding on these lists of patients, just in general, how much time are you spending? You think in a room with a patient, if no one else is able to visit, and you know, you're sitting at the bedside with them and helping them with their calls, are you are you in there for like an hour? It no 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 no. It, it really depends on the patient. You know, some patients I'm in there for five to ten minutes. 
because they're so sick. You know, some of the patients I would go to see them and it became very clear very quickly, like this is a patient you call the family now. You know, things are sort of moving very quickly. Um, and other patients um, would kick me out of the room initially. That happened a couple times. Um, two patients come to mind. One patient was, oh, he's so funny. He kicked me out of the room he was in his late fifties, but had really severe uh, pulmonary hypertension and was actually on four liters of oxygen before he got COVID and had end-stage renal disease on dialysis amongst many, many other comorbidities. So he was one that we did not think would do well. Um, and he was requiring a non-rebreather. And I went in the room and I said, listen, his COVID test, this is when our COVID test took like two, two days to come back. Now they take like 10 minutes, but so it was kind of hard too. You're having this conversation like you might have COVID and if you have COVID, we think you're going to die. But if you don't have COVID, maybe this is reversible. So then let's have that conversation. Let's just map it all out, you know? So I went in the room to talk to him and I was like, so listen, your team wanted me to come because they're worried you have COVID. And he's like, wait, do I have COVID? And I was like, I, I actually don't know if you have it. I mean, we're worried because everything is pointing. And he's like, stop. You and I are not going to talk until I have a positive test that says I have COVID. And I was like, all right. He's like, get out of my room. I was like, okay. So I like took all my stuff off and I walked out of the room. I was in that room, like I think two minutes. And then the next day the intern calls me back. He's like, his COVID test came back positive. And he said, he's willing to speak to you now. And I was like, okay. I like tiptoed back into the room and I was like, it's me again. He's like, all right, sit down. We can talk. And so we like map. He was on a non rebreather. I went through the whole thing with him. He's like, I don't want to go on the ventilator. I'm okay. Dying. Oh. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't think I'll, you know, I was like, I don't think you'd do well, but you know, you're young, he's, you know, in his late fifties. And he's like, no, he hated getting medical. He'd been hated being in the hospital, you know? And, um, and then he died like two days later, oh. he made himself DNR deny. And, um, he was like kind of a fussy grumpy dude, but also hysterical and, um, insightful and so much more complex than I think originally, you know, uh, expected when I, when I met with him. And, um, so that, I mean, there was a, the, a whole range of conversations that I had, uh, with people. I had an oncology patient who also kicked me out of the room, but then I think it helped because then he, I think he sort of was like, okay, if pal care is going to come bear down on me, I'll talk to my oncology team about it. So then after I left, he called the oncology team back in and then sort of was able to have the discussion and move forward. So, I mean, I think the realities of pal care, you don't always sort of feel the, um, the sort of immediate feedback, but sometimes you plant a seed, you know, that, that sort of grows later on. Um, but it was, yeah, it was all over the map that week, the, the two weeks that I've been on. And then one final question, when you get the patient who has you know, already made their wishes known, maybe they're already on hospice as an outpatient even, uh, and they're coming in now with COVID, uh, and you've got some confl conflicting information coming from family, and the patient maybe isn't doing very well and, and can't engage in a lengthy conversation, how are you handling that conversation with family as you say, hey, you know, this person's already on hospice or or maybe he already has a DNR signed and we're getting very close to that moment. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that it, it depends. That's one, we had one in the hospital the first week that I was on palliative care where this was very tricky. 
And, but, but fortunately the physicians had been terrific about documenting their conversations with the patient. Um, the patient had, you know, was in his late seventies and I think had some comorbidities and started to decline and said he didn't want to go on a ventilator and three different physicians documented that conversation. And the policy with Oshner has been, if somebody is at the end of life and they're dying, the family can come in. At that point, it was just one. Now we actually let the whole immediate family come in um, to be with the, the patient. So his wife came in and was like, what is going on here? Put him on a ventilator. Why is he dying? And, um, you know, we, we were consulted because of, you know, so help sort this out. Everyone's in the nurses in distress. The wife's yelling at everybody. Patient's brother's calling saying, you know, we're going to, you know, sue. This is crazy. And I think that had the conversations been not been so well documented, I think we probably would end up having to put that patient on the ventilator. Um, but because when we went back and looked at the notes, we were like, and we were able to show her, you know, like they actually put the words of the patient in and three different physicians talked to them. Um, and so that's a case where I think the hospital felt very comfortable that they were honoring the patient's wishes, that it wasn't just hearsay. You know, there wasn't just this document out there that he had signed 10 years ago and no one really knew the context and what it meant and should it apply to this situation. You know, this was a conversation about this disease that he had with three different physicians. He was consistent in his wishes. And the hospital was like, no, we're going to go with this. And, and, you know, we're so sorry that, you know, this is happening and um, this is so frustrating, but, but this is what we're going to do. And she eventually accepted it, um, but was never obviously pleased with that outcome. Um, and then I think there's other situations. I'm not familiar with any of, of them, but, you know, you hear about where someone comes in and maybe they had a DNR and you can't confirm it and the family's saying they changed their mind. And again, I think the stakes are high. And when the stakes are high, you should be sure, you know? And I think if the family's saying that the patient changed their mind or we're not really sure and we don't have all the information, I think you always err on the side of doing more. And I think an important reminder for emergency physicians is it's easy to undo, right? I mean, we undo all the time. We take people out and it's a big part of what we were doing in the last couple, you know, the last month is taking people off of ventilators um, when things aren't going well or family changes their mind. It's an easy thing to do. Um, so, so that, that's sort of how I'd counsel. I think it kind of depends on the documentation of those wishes. Um, you know, and you know, if it's just like a living will, which they're so vague, they're so unhelpful. They are so not applicable to like the unique clinical situation that you're dealing with at the bedside. Um, you know, I'd probably err on the side of going with the family and what they're, what they're telling me. It's good to hear that if you are able to document, especially the patient's own words and just add that to the chart, that that's a helpful. Item. So helpful. I feel like, I feel like that is when I took uh, that case sort of reinforced to me, because especially in the ED, we probably have these conversations all the time and we're like, Oh, you know, patient opted to be DNR denied, you know, but actually putting patient understood. And he said he would never want to be on a ventilator, even if it, you know, actually putting their words in, I think it really does help future teams then feel good that they're making the right decision in supporting the patient, you know, because some of the conversations are not great quality conversations, you know? So do you want the entire team to stand behind an intern went in and talked to the patient for 10 minutes and told them to be DNR, DNI? And so then we have on the chart that they're DNR, DNI and everyone's saying, no, 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 to the wife. No, he wanted to be DNR, DNI, but actually that reflected a very you know terrible conversation. So I feel like putting and really putting the conversation and the words and the reasoning behind it 
is very, very helpful. If you, particularly if you anticipate that there's going to be conflict, which a lot of the times we don't know what we're going to get because the family wasn't there, you know, at the time of these conversations. So. Yeah. More recently with uh, the COVID policies around visitation, I found myself having a lot of telephone conversations with family who would normally be at the bedside and trying to explain to them, well, this is what your family member looked like when they left your house. And this is what they look like now here on arrival. And in the interim, someone started some CPAP and now they're on BiPAP and their chest X-ray looks terrible. And we're progressing very rapidly in, in a direction that I don't like. And that's a lot for them to take in on the phone when they can't even see their loved one or see any kind of corroboration of what I'm telling them over the phone. Right. It's like trust. They're trusting you. They have to believe that everything you're saying is true. It's crazy, right? It's a yeah. huge faith for them. Yeah. And I talked to my mom about it. My mom's like, I don't know if I would just trust a doctor on the phone if it was your dad in the hospital. And they were just telling me that like, it's time to take off the ventilator and to make these decisions. And I hadn't seen, it's like, I just can't even imagine. Um, yeah, it's it's an enormous burden that we're putting on these families. It's not It's not fair, you know? At what point did you, did the hospital system switch over and begin allowing family back into the room around the, the time of, you know, critical illness? It was the last time I was on palliative care. It was probably a few weeks ago. Uh, they went from, I think they allowed one to two visitors. And it was the call of the nurses. This was sort of a challenge the first time I was on palliative care because it was like, deciding when is the patient at the end of life okay they're on comfort oriented care but they look like they probably have a few days can we call the family in no no no, no. we need to wait till they're like unresponsive you know every unit was a little bit different every nurse charge nurse was a little bit different so we shift we did a we group, formed a group and sort of put our heads together and we decided that no all immediate family members should be allowed in not just the one or two um but they should come as a group they should go in the room as a group they should exit the room as a group the nurse has to be there and know when they're coming in so they can get all the PPE, you know, on them and um, help them with hand hygiene. And then um, it's going to be the call of the provider, you know, when they think that person is at the end of life. Um, and I've been able to have a little wiggle room. I had a patient in the ICU the last time I was on PalCare two weeks ago who, you know, had been in there for four weeks and was on CRT, two pressors. Um, and on the vent and had a, some, you know, heart failure was in mid seventies with heart failure and a lot of other comorbidities and not going to recover. She was one of the ones that I was, I'm very, rarely do I invoke certainty, but I was like, I am certain she is not going to recover. And the family was lovely, but I finally was like, I told the SICU team, I'm like, I think we're gonna have to bend the rules here a little bit. We all know she's dying. We're not calling her an end of life patient yet, but she's going to die. And in the next few days, this family is not going to be able to make a decision for this patient unless they come in and see her. They have to see her. Like they just don't believe us. And they can't, I understand like, and the minute they came in and saw her the next day they made a decision. And then the next day we took her off life support and took, you know, and then she died, I think within minutes. Um, but they had to see her. They like couldn't really digest what we were trying to, you know, what we were trying to communicate. Um, and Angelo Volandes, he's a, PalCare geriatrics researcher at Harvard has done a lot of research on that. And he really believes strongly in video, uh, you know, augmentation for, um, for these discussions, because he feels like people just don't really understand without seeing, you know, we're visual creatures and we need to see to understand. 
Um, and I think that's been one of the, the horrible barriers to meaningful goals of care discussions with families is they can't see, you know, so that it's hard for them to understand. Yeah, I've had that experience just in uh, in you know out of hospital cardiac arrest uh, in those scenarios where family comes in and then I have to notify them and then uh, I just universally assume that they want to come back and and see their loved one and just to kind of get that closure and say yeah you know maybe they were alive when they left your house or maybe the CPR was ongoing but you need to come back and just get that get that goodbye in and get that closure. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. This was an amazing uh, talk, and uh, and I think people are really going to enjoy it. There's a lot of helpful pointers there. Uh, it's a it's a terrible time, but I think this is going to help a lot of people get through it. And uh, and I really appreciate your expertise. It's very nice. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. It was such a pleasure to meet you. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Such a wonderful interview with Dr. Ashley Shreves, and such valuable information. Once again, a quick reminder that we have two upcoming live webinars, June 4th and June 17th. Please click the link in the show notes and register. And remember, it costs you nothing and you can get up to five hours of CME per program. I highly recommend it and I look forward to meeting you there. Until next time, I'm Sam Ashew.